You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. You would uh, go ahead and turn over in your Bibles now to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, We uh, have been doing a series uh, during the Advent season leading up to Christmas uh, through the first couple of chapters of Luke. Uh, Well, now... We're going to go Old Testament for a while Uh, and go ahead and, you know, find the book of Nehemiah. And if you find it, just put a a bookmark in there because we're going to be spending uh, about the next 13 weeks just camping out there uh, from now until Easter. Uh, If you're not familiar where that book is, it's kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. It's just after Ezra, right before Esther. You get to Psalms, you've gone too far, go back a couple. Um, But today we're going to be looking at the first chapter of Nehemiah, uh, looking at verses 1 through 11. Um, So go ahead and turn there and let me pray for our time. Uh, But then I'm going to kind of talk for a few minutes of just give you just an overview of this book and what we're going to be talking about in this book over the next few weeks. Uh, so it'll, it'll be a few minutes before we actually get to uh, our passage for today. But let me go ahead and pray. God, we just ask for your mercy as we come uh, to this time of studying your word. Uh, Father, you are an infinite God. Uh, we are finite human beings. We're not always as quick as we should be to just understand the truth and the wisdom of your word. Uh, But I pray that everything that we would study over the next 30 minutes or so would just be crystal clear. Help us plainly see, plainly understand what you're trying to say to us in this text and let our souls be transformed by it all as a result. Ask that in Jesus's name. Amen. So a complaint that I often hear about those who don't like studying the Bible is that God's word just sounds too outdated when you read it. Uh, People say it's dry. People say it's boring. People say that it's irrelevant to the struggles they're facing today. Uh, But as we start this new study through Nehemiah, I hope you'll see that that's not true. All right, we're getting ready to study about God's people who were living in a godless nation filled with greedy and corrupt politicians. Uh, And because their children were being raised in such a spiritually toxic culture, uh, there was a great fear that future generations would walk away from the faith, uh, which sounds an awful lot like many of the concerns that Christians today have in our own country. Um, And if that's not enough, as you study through this book, you'll see that there's going to be this heated debate on whether or not people should build a wall. Uh, People get passionate on both sides. Yes, we need the wall. No, we don't need the wall. And you just have to stop and ask yourself, is this ancient Israel or are we talking about 21st century America? Uh, There's also a lot of changes in this book that the people of God are are going to have to face during this time of crisis. Uh, Back when they lived in Jerusalem, they had access to the house of the Lord where they could study the word of God if they wanted. Now, most of them didn't go to the temple, uh, but at least they could. 
but then during this exile, the uh, temple there in Jerusalem was destroyed. And so there's a season where God's people don't even have the ability to gather together and worship like they once did. Uh, for a season, they're going to feel isolated. They're going to feel uh, separated as they're spread across this uh, empire. Uh, and they're going to be forced for a season to worship God from home. And as I studied that this week in my office, I had more than a few flashbacks back to the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, when we suddenly had to realize that we couldn't take assembling together and worship for granted. And we, for a season, felt isolated and separated from one another. So I almost forgot that I was reading a story that is thousands of years old rather than something that was just recently published. And when you read about the the end of the Israelite exile, when they were allowed to go back into the land and the temple was rebuilt and its doors were opened for worship once again, do you know what you learn? That, That not everyone who used to worship there comes back. Some of the people, some of God's people got too comfortable living in Babylon and they decided not to return. And I suddenly found myself feeling for Nehemiah saying to myself, there's a lot of pastors out there that could relate to that because there are a lot of people who claim to be Christian who never came back to their churches when the doors were opened again after the pandemic was done. So to me, books like Nehemiah feel just as relevant today, if if not even maybe more so than they have ever been. It's almost like the author of this story is still trying to speak to us today. He's trying to speak to us through this ancient text. So as we study Nehemiah over the next few months, I hope you'll keep in mind the relevance it still has for us today. Um, Everything we're going to read about actually happened. Uh, These were historical events. But there's also a lot that Nehemiah has to teach us today about living the Christian life. Uh, There's actually a symbol uh, that's often used to uh, represent the book of Nehemiah, uh, which is the sword and the trowel. Uh, And when I was even creating the sermon series uh, background for Nehemiah, as you'll see in a moment, I even tried to include that in the picture. Uh, I put a a sword uh, that connects to the letter N and the trowel kind of comes out of the H. Uh, We'll we'll talk about that more later in the story when we get there. Uh, But there's a point in which you see Nehemiah and his men, they're trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so in one hand, they're told to have construction tools like a trowel so they can spread out the mortar in between the different layers of the bricks. Uh, But then in the other hand, they're also told to keep a sword because at any moment they were afraid that the enemy might attack. So you have this imagery in your mind of these construction worker soldiers, guys that are armed with both swords and trowels. Because they have to simultaneously be able to move forward with what they're building, and they have to be able to defend the work that they've already done. They have to be on the offensive and defensive at the same time. And I don't know a better depiction 
of the Christian life. Right? That's what being a follower of Jesus looks like in a nutshell. Right? We're called to do our part when it comes to building the kingdom of God, yet we must do so with a sword in hand, or else we're going to run the risk of letting the enemy sabotage the work that's already been accomplished. So let's just keep that imagery in the back of our mind of the sword and the trowel as we study this book. Let's be reminded how this ancient story still holds significant relevance to Christians today. So with all that being said, though, uh, let me go ahead now and just read our passage for today. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Let's see how this story begins. Here from the word of the Lord this morning says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Helkiah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the, tw- in the tw- 20th year. I was in Susa, the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But I, if, I, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. So just so you know where we're at in the storyline of the Bible, um, at this point, God has not only brought his people into the promised land, but he's also already kicked them out of the promised land because of their sin. Now, after 70 years in exile, he is graciously inviting them back once again. But we'll see there still needs a a massive amount of rebuilding that's going to have to happen if God's people are ever going to prosper in the land again. 
because their former capital, Jerusalem, is now just a shell of her former glory. The temple is in ruins. Most of the rest of the city is just rubble. Uh, There wasn't even any walls there anymore to protect Jerusalem either. And this really isn't that much different than the Christian life, because before Jesus, our own lives were also heaps of rubble that had been ruined by our own sin. And so the vast majority of our lives as followers of Jesus is really just going to involve tearing down those remaining leftover uh, ruins from our old life so that we can rebuild our life on a new foundation of Christ. Now, there's three things in this passage that we see that Nehemiah is going to do, three steps that he takes in order to jumpstart this process of rebuilding Jerusalem. And these are steps that we would do well to implement in our own lives as Christians, too. First, we're going to see that Nehemiah grieves... Then he believes, and then lastly, he lets the Lord intercede. Uh, He grieves, he believes, and he lets the Lord intercede. And he does those three things in that order, uh, which is important for us to remember. So first, he grieves. All right, this is what you read about in the opening verses of this chapter, Uh, Nehemiah wasn't born in Israel. He was Jewish, but he wasn't born in Israel. Uh, Rather, he was a Jewish refugee living uh, in the Persian Empire. Uh, And we we meet him, uh, you know, in this early part of this story. Uh, We discover several things about him. He's actually a a well-off man. Uh, He's made a, a good name for himself, even though he's just a refugee living in this pagan empire. Uh, He's actually living a very comfortable life in the capital of Susa. Uh, But Nehemiah hasn't forgotten his Jewish heritage, though. Uh, In fact, far from it, uh, because when he is is visited in the capital by this uh, group of Jewish men, they're traveling from Judah, the very first question that he focuses on is about their well-being and the status of Jerusalem. He wants to know how Jerusalem is. And in verse 3, these men respond by saying that the remnant there in Jerusalem who have survived the exile, they are in great trouble and shame. For the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Soon as Nehemiah was told those things, It says that he sat down, he wept, and he mourned for days. Now, this city isn't even his anymore. He wasn't born there. He wasn't raised there. It's likely that he might not have even ever visited there because it was 900 miles away from where he lived. But Jerusalem is the city where God once dwelt with his people And now it lay in ashes. And so Nehemiah's heart breaks for this broken city. And I hope that that's your response to brokenness as well. When you think about cities in our own land, what's your first thought? Is it, man, 
I am so glad that I don't live in a sin-infested place like St. Louis or Kansas City. Or is your heart broken for the brokenness of those who are living there, knowing that even in cities in the United States where you can see church steeples still on every corner, there are countless of lost sheep wandering aimlessly in spiritual darkness. Or when somebody comes into your life and their own life is just a train wreck, what's your first response to that? Is it... Man, I am so glad that my life is not a mess like theirs. Or does the reality of their situation break your own heart as well? I hope it does. I want you to ask yourself a question. When was the last time that you cried over something going on in the life of a neighbor or a friend or a family member? Even if you're a guy and you're one of those guys that think that men shouldn't, you know, express any kind of emotions uh, publicly. Maybe you think that men shouldn't have functional tear ducts. Uh, I hope that you've at least had a few of those Nehemiah moments where you just wept like a baby over the brokenness of this world and the sin that someone around you was still trapped in. I hope things like abortion and the sexual revolution in our country. I hope those aren't just sins that you complain about at the coffee shop, but are also things that you cry about. I hope those are sins that just break your heart. But I also want you to pay, a, pay close attention to something else going on in this passage. Look for a moment in verse 6, where it says that in the midst of Nehemiah's grieving, He's also moved to repentance, even though, again, he wasn't even born in Israel. He wasn't a part of the previous generation of those wicked individuals that caused Israel's exile. Despite that, we're still told that Nehemiah confesses the sins of Israel, and he says, which we, so including himself, have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, that's one of those verses that you should really ponder on and just think about and mull over the rest of the day. I mean, why would Nehemiah repent of sin that he didn't directly commit? Well, first, we just have to admit that none of us are completely free from sin. We're all guilty of it in some capacity, so even though Nehemiah hadn't lived with his ancestors back in Israel, his heart was still just as wicked in its own ways. So he knows that he stands just as condemned before the Lord, and therefore he is just as in need of forgiveness. But Nehemiah also realizes that starting off with this posture of repentance, even for sins that he didn't directly have anything to do with, that's what it's going to take to begin this process of renewal and restoration for God's people. I think about it, uh, about this kind of thing, whenever there's a, a scandal uh, or some kind of moral failure in a church or an organization or an institution. Um, you know, you can be, even think about our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, 
Uh, we're back in uh, 2018. There was this big report that was released uh, documenting several hundred cases of sexual abuse across a number of our churches. Um, and at the time, uh, J.D. Greer, who was the president of the convention, um, he led the denomination through a season of repentance, seeking the Lord's forgiveness, even though he hadn't personally done anything wrong. His church hadn't done anything wrong. But it was that kind of radical, just transparent repentance that it takes to bring about spiritual renewal and restoration. There will even be times when people will come into your own life who have been hurt by the church in some way, shape, or form, where there's other Christians that have looked down on them, have ignored them, neglected them, maybe even abused them in some way. And even though you might not be personally responsible for what happened to them, it's okay and even good and healthy for you to apologize on behalf of God's people and to say that you're sorry for how they have been wronged and harmed and just to recognize that what others did to them wasn't right. And you might just discover that that kind of repentance is actually the key to jump-starting that process of restoring their broken relationship with the church and the relationship with the Lord. All right, there are times where repentance can actually be an effective evangelism strategy. So Nehemiah grieves, and not just for a moment, as we've seen, but for days. All right, there is a season of grieving in his life before he decides to jump into action. Right, but then next, after he grieves, the second step that he takes is that he believes. And you need to do it in that order. All right, you first have to confess and mourn and repent over sin. Otherwise, you're just proving that you haven't actually truly believed or trusted in the Lord just yet. Rather, you're still trusting in yourself to be your own savior. But grieving just for the sake of grieving, isn't good either. You, you have to have the type of grieving that actually leads somewhere. Right? Grieving must lead to trusting and believing that God can actually do something about your circumstances. Uh, Nehemiah was just one man. And he, as I said, he doesn't live anywhere near Jerusalem. He's almost a thousand miles away. So rebuilding her walls isn't something he's going to be able to accomplish on his own. This is a God-sized task, and it's going to require someone like God to see it through. But Nehemiah believes that it can happen. He has faith. Let me just point to two things in this passage that Nehemiah believes in. Nehemiah believes both in the power of prayer and in the power of God's word. All right, first, the power of prayer. Nehemiah was a very affluent man. We'll read about that more in the next chapter. Uh, he had a lot of resources at his disposal, uh, but he still doesn't jump right into action when his brothers and his friends come to him and tell him about this situation, right? Even after he's already spent days 
grieving and mourning over the ruins of Jerusalem, he still takes more time to pray before he does anything else. Right, many of us, in, if we were in his shoes, we would have immediately wanted to have saddled a horse and just start riding. Right, we may not have even had a plan yet, but we would figure out a plan on the way. Because we just want to make sure that we're, we're feeling some kind of progress and we're working towards some kind of solution. So we just want to jump right into action. But I'm always reminded of that old saying that if you fail to plan, that you plan to fail. Well, that's true for prayer as well. If you fail to pray, you're just praying to fail when you face God-sized problems, you have to be in direct communication, praying to the God who can solve those problems. So Nehemiah believes in the power of prayer. But secondly, he also believes in the power of God's word. Nehemiah, as we see, actually knows his Bible pretty well. He may not have had access to the temple to worship in. That temple had been destroyed. But he still has a, a great grasp of Scripture. Look starting in verse 8, where he asks the Lord to remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. I love, I love that Nehemiah speaks God's own words right back to him. Now you can never go wrong with doing that. Right, if, you've ever, uh, if you ever want your, your prayers to be answered in the affirmative, if you ever want God to say yes to the, the prayers that you are praying, praying, well, then pray about things that God has already promised to do in his word, all right? Because if he's already written about it, if he's already said that he is going to do it, then you can bet that those prayers will be answered yes, because he's not going to change his mind. He's going to do what he has already said in his word that he's going to do. Nehemiah knew all the way back in the days of Moses that God had predicted that his people wouldn't last long in the promised land. They would become just as wicked as the Canaanites who had lived there before them. And so just like the Canaanites, they would have to be spit or vomited out of the land. That's how scripture describes it. But Nehemiah also understands that the exile from the land will not mean the end of God's people. Even though they were still scattered uh, from the land uh, to the utmost parts, if they repent and if they return their hearts to the Lord, then Nehemiah knew, as it was written in God's word, that God would be faithful to gather his people back again. And Nehemiah trusts that God's word is true and that what it says, all of what it says will come to pass. And if we would just have that same confidence as Nehemiah to believe both in the power of prayer and the power of God's word, what a difference that would make in our own lives. I know we live in an area where even 
Non-Christians will tell you that they believe in both of those things. But functionally speaking, so often those are the last places that we run in a time of crisis. But we convince ourselves that we don't have time to stop and pray and ask for the God's intervention. We are in the middle of a crisis and we need to act. We don't have time to stop and pray. Or we think that we need more than just the wisdom from some ancient document. We, we need to go ask the professionals. We need to go ask the experts. So even if we tell other people that we trust in the power of God, in the power of prayer, and in the power of God's word, functionally speaking, we, we haven't yet convinced our hearts of that. But that's not Nehemiah. He, he grieves and then he believes. And it would be really easy just to end right there. But I just want to take a moment to point out one last step that Isaiah or that Isaiah, that Nehemiah takes. Uh, because after he believes, then we see that he gets out of the way and he lets the Lord intercede on his behalf. He grieves, he believes, and then he gets out of the way. And he lets the Lord intercede. Look at the very, very last words of chapter 1. This is where Nehemiah says, Now I was the cupbearer to the king. It's kind of a strange note uh, to end the chapter on. You know, it kind of leaves you on a bit of a cliffhanger because you're not really sure why that's relevant information to the story. You're not really sure how that fits into the rest of what's going on in chapter 1. Um, and I do just want to make it clear that things like verse numbers, chapter numbers, uh, they weren't originally a part of this book. Uh, they were actually added much later by scribes who were just trying to organize God's word and help us navigate it better. Uh, so God's not the one that ended chapter one with these words. Uh, but whoever decided to include this last sentence in chapter 1, rather than having it be the first sentence in chapter 2, it's like they didn't want you to end the first part of Nehemiah's story while being too discouraged. You know, you read about these broken walls of Jerusalem and the gates that have been burned by fire, and then they didn't want that, that part of the story to end right there. No, no, whoever included this last sentence in chapter one, it's like they at least want to give you a glimpse of the hope that is to come, the hope that there is to finding a solution to this problem. I'm not going to go into all of the details right now about the significance of cupbearers in the ancient world. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. But as a cupbearer, this meant that Nehemiah was a personal servant to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. And it's going to be important that Nehemiah has access to someone like a king. Because as I've been saying, the problem that he and God's people face, it's too big to solve on their own. Nehemiah isn't going to be able to rebuild these walls by himself. He needs someone with the authority and the resources to make it happen. He needs an advocate. He needs someone willing to intercede on his behalf like a king. And church, you need to know that you also have access 
to a king, to, to a, an even greater king than the one that Nehemiah knew. All right, you have access to the king of the universe. And if you've submitted your life to Christ and you are a follower of his, then you are actually more than just a cupbearer to the king. All right, you have actually been adopted into the king's family as a son or daughter. And if the king of Persia was willing to intercede on behalf of his personal cupbearer, well, how much more will the king of all creation be willing to intercede on behalf of a member of his own household? Right? This is the majority of the Christian life. It's just learning and reminding yourself that you have access to the king. And you can go and pray and speak directly to the king and then you can get out of the king's way and let him intercede on your behalf. When the walls of your own life have crumbled, you're not going to be able to rebuild them on your own. That's a job that only God can do. A broken relationship between you and your wife or you and your husband. That's something you've just got to leave to the Lord. You've got to let him intervene. But here's the thing. He is more than willing to do it. All right, you serve a king who is actually chomping at the bit, just waiting for you to be willing to step aside so he can fight for you, so he can be your advocate, so he can intervene. All you got to do is let him. So as we've seen through Nehemiah, we need to be willing to spend time to spend a season grieving over our sins. That's step one. Then you also need to believe in the power of prayer and the power of God's word. And then all that's left to do is to go to the king, to tell him about your problems so that the Lord can intercede on your behalf and get to work. Grieve, believe, and then let the Lord intercede. Let me pray. Father, thank you again for these ancient but, but timeless truths of Nehemiah. I pray that as we just continue to study them in the weeks ahead, as we continue to um, look at the, the wisdom found here, I pray that you, you would just show us the, the relevance, again, that, that the, these ancient texts have for our lives today. They are just as, as important today, just as relevant today as they ever have been. So let us just continue to see that the scriptures are never dull. They're never boring. They're never irrelevant. But rather, they continue to be filled with soul-transforming power. Just pray that we would remember these things. and Just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.